Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the process of cutting gems. Up until this week, I had no idea about it. But if you are familiar with it, you would know that there is a lot of waste and a lot of pain to get to the good stuff. Yeah, see, I don't know much about it, the good stuff, right? Um, you see, uh, all this good stuff gets chipped away and left on a table. Now, the picture beside me is of a flawless Botswana diamond. That's 102 carats. It fits in the palm of your hand and it's worth $33 million. But it was cut down from a rough diamond that was 425 carats. So if you do the maths, that's like 300 carats of diamond left on the table. But why so much pain? Why so much waste? Because the artful cutting and crafting allows the diamond to radiate light as its true glory is revealed. And when it's darkest, the light from this diamond shines the brightest. And in a sense, that's what John has been doing with his gospel as he's presented the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 1, we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Glory in John's gospel is not praise or thanksgiving, but it's revelation. A revelation of Jesus' true identity. Because just like a diamond, the artful cutting and crafting allows the sun to radiate light as his true glory is revealed. And it's in the darkest day that the glory of the sun shines the brightest. And that's important for us today because we have just read about the darkest day in history. The darkest day is not when the British Empire declared war on Germany. The darkest day is not when hundreds of thousands of refugees fled their home of Syria or Iran or Afghanistan. The darkest day is when God allowed us to unleash our passion for power on his son Jesus. The darkest day in history is when the divine Son of God, full of grace and truth, was nailed to a cross. Yet in the darkest day, the glory of the sun shines the brightest because the cross reveals to us who Jesus really is and what God is like. Therefore, the darkest hour, sorry, the darkest day that we speak of today should fill us with hope. It should fill us with awe. It should fill us with gratitude towards our God. Because nothing, not our sin, nor the evil of this world, not even death itself, can extinguish this light. Now, I don't know about you, but 2021 is finishing the same as 2020. Wouldn't you agree? Um, uh, My daughter Piper started soccer, the first time she's ever played soccer this year. She was so excited. And then lockdown happened. So she got four or five games in and then we came out of lockdown and she said, Daddy, do I get to play soccer again? Well, no. That's kind of the year that we've had, isn't it? 
We've had lockdown round two. Those holidays that you postponed last year, you had to postpone them again this year. Our year 12 students, in fact, all of our students have just been through the ringer. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us have lost family members that we loved. And so where should we look for hope? In the darkest days, the glory of the sun shines the brightest. So we look to the cross. And that's what we're going to spend some time doing this afternoon. You see, we're in John's Gospel. Um, uh, John writes his Gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, uh, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. And in these final chapters... John spends a third of the gospel on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And so John wants us to slow down and take in the details. He wants us to think about the sign above Jesus. He wants us to figure out why the soldiers are rolling dice and dividing up clothes. He wants us to think about what's with the whole Mary, John, Jesus on the cross just having a general discussion in the middle of crucifixion thing. He wants us to think about all of these details so that we would see that Jesus is the crucified king who gives us life. Three points today. The scene, the signs, and the saviour. Have a look at verse 16 with me. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull in Aramaic, which is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. If you're familiar with the other gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, you might feel like there's a lot of information left out. You might be a bit disappointed. I mean, Jesus carries his cross, but there's no mention of Simon of Cyrene here helping him carry the cross. Uh, There's the the mention of the two thieves uh, crucified either side of him, but there's no mention of the conversation takes place. And isn't that a great conversation that takes place between them? Just to be clear, John hasn't forgotten about these things. He focuses on particular details for a particular purpose. The big central theme here is the cross. The cross or crucified is mentioned seven out of times out of ten verses. So John wants us to see that the cross is central to this part of his gospel. Uh, Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. Um, A historian, Tom Holland, in his book Dominion, explains the process. He says, The condemned criminal would bear the crossbeam across their shoulders to the place of execution, where the upright section was already fastened in the ground. The criminal was then made to lie on their back. Their arms were stretched out, and nails were driven into their wrists or hands. Sometimes ropes were used. The condemned criminal would then be uh, fastened to the beam and the beam would be hoisted up along with the victim and attached to the vertical beam. Uh, In order to breathe, the crucified man had to lift himself up using the nails in his hands as leverage. Eventually, unable to bear the pain or exert strength, the criminal would die through suffocation. 
quite literally the weight of their shoulders, on their lungs would not allow them to breathe. This would sometimes go on for hours or even days. Crucifixion was equal parts shame, public horror and death. Now, I don't know how you felt as you read the crucifixion narrative today, as we read John's Gospel. It's quite popular today for us to focus on the gruesomeness of the cross, or even the injustice that Jesus is facing. Uh, But John doesn't want to focus on the feelings. He wants us to focus on the facts. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So in this chaotic event, like a skilled cinematographer, John sets the scene. This is the crucified king. And he wants us to ask the question, can this crucified criminal really be God's eternal king? I mean, let's be honest, things aren't going well for Jesus at this point in the gospel, are they? I mean, three years ago, he had a pretty good life. He had some disciples, uh, he had a crowd, he he was regarded as a good teacher or, or even a miracle worker. There was even talk of a revolution. But if this is how it ends, if all that talk of the kingdom of God and his king ends with a helpless victim pinned in agony to a cross then you really have to ask yourself the question, is this really God's king? That's what John wants us to be thinking about. And to answer that question, he gives us two signs, which is our second point. Have a look at verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. Roman crucifixion often had the charge of the criminal above the man's head. Aramaic was Israel's common language, the language that Jesus spoke. Latin was the the official language of the Roman Empire and Greek was the common language, kind of like the trade language that was used. But when Jesus is crucified, he isn't crucified in secret. He isn't taken into the back alley to be done away with. No, this is a public event. He's placed outside the walls of Jerusalem, which was um, called for by the Old Testament, so that people who would pass by would see that here stands Jesus, King of the Jews. During that time of Passover, Jerusalem would swell to kind of two or three times its population. So hundreds of people would have seen that here is Jesus, the one that Pilate is executing. So on one level, this sign above Jesus' head, it's common practice. Pilate wants everyone entering or leaving Jerusalem to know the crimes and punishment and that people should submit to the Roman government. On another level, Pilate is humiliating the Jewish leaders. Uh, If you remember last week, the chief priests threatened to take the problem to Caesar. So in a flex of power and authority, Pilate refuses to change the sign. He's humiliating them. But on a deeper level, Pilate is unknowingly declaring the true identity of Jesus. 
Like I said before, glory is a key theme in John's Gospel. And glory focuses on revelation, Jesus' own identity. If we go to the next slide, in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. And John tells us this was the first sign which revealed his glory. That is, it showed his identity, who he truly is. And in John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, It says that God's Son did this so that he may be glorified. That is, so that Jesus may reveal his true identity. So if Jesus truly is the King of the Jews, if he's God's chosen King, then Pilate, with this sign above the cross, is unknowingly declaring, revealing Jesus' true identity. The Father is, being, is bringing glory to the Son so we may see who Jesus truly is. Think about it this way. It's quite ironic. Our Pilate, the one who scoffed at the power of God, has just broadcast who truly has the power of God. Pilate, who claimed to have his own authority, is announcing who has real authority. Pilate, the one who asked what is truth has just proclaimed to the world the truth of the world, Jesus, King of the Jews. Truth, dominion, and the power of God's King is on display as Jesus hangs on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. More like Jesus of Nazareth, King of the world. You might be thinking, well, hang on, Chris, you're clutching at straws here. It's just a bit of a coincidence. Uh, That really isn't part of God's plan. Let's have a look at the second sign, verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. The uh, Roman execution squad was four soldiers and one centurion. And the belongings of the crucified, their clothes, was actually a reward for the executioners. So it's no surprise here that Jesus' clothes are divided among four people uh, and also um, that the last one, uh, possibly a tunic, um, that they cast lots or they roll a dice to see who gets it. But what stands out is that the soldiers did this because God, through the scriptures, said it would happen. Now, it's possible to read these things and just match the details, yeah? So John here is quoting Psalm 22. We could say that Psalm 22 says X, and then we look around for something that looks like that, and look, X, okay, we see it fulfilled. But that's not how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. The word fulfill doesn't mean corresponds, but accomplish and to carry out. So the soldiers are not merely corresponding to Psalm 22. As they make acts of their free agency, God is using their decisions to fulfil his plans and purposes. You see, Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, a psalm of the king. It's written by David and it tells of a king who feels deserted by God. It famously starts, and Jim really helpfully read it earlier, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 16 we read, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. The king of Psalm 22 feels abandoned by God, yet he still obeys God. He is despised by men, but he still trusts God. And even in the face of death, he still submits to God. And so in verse 27 we read, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. So since this king continues to trust God, the sovereign Lord vindicates this king. And in quoting this psalm, John helps us to understand what Jesus is thinking when he's on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus, the king, feels abandoned by God, yet he still obeys God. He feels despised by men, yet he still submits to God. He is faced with death, and he still trusts God. And therefore, like the king of Psalm 22, he will be vindicated by God. He will be raised, he will be exalted, and he will reign over all the nations of the world throughout all of the ages. So in fulfilling Psalm 22, we see that Jesus on the cross is God's eternal king. Which means the suffering of Jesus on the cross was part of God's salvation plan. You know, as 21st century rugged individualists, we try to avoid pain as much as possible, don't we? So we think that suffering is not for us. We think pain, that's to be avoided. Any harm that would become of us, well, that's just not keeping with who I am. But here, it is not that Jesus goes through suffering and then glory, but rather glory through suffering. Jesus' suffering on the cross was part of God's salvation plan. You see, Jesus' trial before Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, the ones that we've looked over the last couple of weeks, they weren't really his trial. The trial before Annas was a kangaroo court. The trial before Caiaphas was staged because they already knew the verdict. And the trial before Pilate was really Pilate's trial before the Jewish people about his power. The true trial of Jesus was the one before his heavenly father. So on the cross, so on the cross, he will obey the will of the father. On the cross, he will drink the cup of the sorry, the cup of his father's wrath. And on the cross, he willingly lays down his life even though he knows he's innocent. And in doing so, He fulfills the Father's plan to save humanity. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, the Father, he fulfills the Father's plan and the Father glorifies the Son, showing us who Jesus truly is, God's eternal King. And then we get that weird bit with the conversation. 
Did you feel that as we were reading it at the end of John's Gospel? Um, at 9am, I kind of skipped over it and I got a whole bunch of questions. So I thought um, I, I should include it. I Have a look at um, verse 26 with me. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and his disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Uh, It's quite an extraordinary thing for Jesus, God's eternal king, amid suffering and pain and his own death, to care about other people, isn't it? And at that, to care for his mother. Now, we probably have a whole bunch of questions. I mean, where's Joseph at this point? What about the older brothers? Because traditionally they would take care of the mother. They're not in the picture at all. On one hand, Jesus here is caring for his earthly mother in probably one of her greatest points of pain and suffering. As she sees her earthly son, let's say, crucified on a cross. He cares for her so much that he uses the language of adoption. Did you notice that? Woman, here is your son, and here is your mother. Uh, and so um, Mary, uh, Mary's not simply being taken care of, but rather Jesus is ensuring that both John and Mary would form a spiritual family together and take care of one another. So on one hand, this eternal king shows his love and care for his people. Also on the other hand, John's actually flagging the witnesses of the resurrection. Who are the women who see the empty tomb? Well, it will be Mary Magdalene. And these women, it will be John the disciple. Uh, Who's the one who wrote the the gospel? Well, it was John, who saw the crucified Jesus die and resurrected. And so in one sense, uh, this is a care, an eternal king who cares for his his mother, who shows love. And in the other sense, we also see um, people, there are people who will see Jesus die and then physically resurrected. John shows us uh, two signs today. The sign above the cross and the sign of the fulfilment of Psalm 22. That the Father is bringing glory to the Son so that we may truly see that he is God's eternal king. It's kind of like the Botswana diamond. If we go back to that image. The Botswana diamond, remember this? 425 carats, whatever a carrot is, (laughs) trimmed down to 100 carats so that we would see its brilliance and its glory. And John is doing this with Jesus on the cross. Jesus suffers pain and agony and is on the cross so that the Father may glorify the Son and we see who Jesus truly is and what God is like. What's hard in this passage is that it kind of stops there. Did you notice that? I mean, if we go home today, Jesus is still alive and he's still on the cross. 
Doesn't that feel weird? I mean, if you're anything like me, you want to go, okay, let's jump ahead to later in the chapter and we get to the, it is finished and Jesus is dead. Okay, cool. Uh, Or you might be, um, you know, an optimist and you want to go to chapter 20 and talk about the resurrection because no one likes talking about death. So let's talk about the resurrection, all the hope. Fantastic. But it's good for us to think about Jesus on the cross tonight. It's good for us, uh, even though it feels strange, because here is where the Father glorifies the Son and gives us the greatest sign to show us who Jesus is truly like. I'll finish with three things just really quickly. First, Jesus on the cross shows us the character of God. We are no longer blind to what God is like because on the cross we see the justice of God, that God will not permit sin to continue to exist in this world and so he pours out his wrath on his son. And We see the mercy of God because we see Jesus willingly take up his cross to die in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sin and be made right with God. So if you want to know what God is like, then we look to the cross where justice and mercy meet. Second, today as we reflect on the darkest day in human history, we see uh, the light of the glory of the sun shine its brightest because it's in Jesus being nailed to the cross that he pays for our sin and fulfills God's salvation plan. This is something that we could never do, but Jesus does it for us on our behalf as our substitute so we could be reconciled to God. And finally, in this darkest day, we have hope. Like I said before, uh, 2021 is feeling a lot like 2020 at the moment. There's postponed holidays, school students through the ringer, There's soccer teams that can't even play anymore, my goodness. But in a world that feels so uncertain and without hope, Jesus on the cross gives us hope. He gives us a certain future. He gives us peace with God because at the cross we see the power and wisdom of God displayed as the eternal Son of God, God's King, dies in our place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your son Jesus, your eternal king. We thank you for the pain that he patiently bore on the cross, paying the debt that we could never pay so our sins could be forgiven. And we thank you for your word that testifies to this. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, transform our hearts so that we may see Jesus as your eternal King and find life in his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.